Hi, folks. You're listening to another episode of the Abandoned America podcast, and I'm your host, Matthew Christopher. So, it's been a bit since the last episode on Gold Street, and that was a while after the episode on Forest Haven. I've had a lot going on that's made keeping a two-week schedule a bit difficult, and I'm considering wrapping up Season 2, taking a break to focus on other projects for a month or three, and coming back for a third season with a bunch of great stories about more abandoned places, hopefully when I'm a little less stressed about life. Before I do that, though, I have a few more episodes in the hopper that I wanted to get to. You may remember earlier in the season I was doing a lot of interviews. Too many to really keep up with editing, to be honest, which is why I switched to the shorter narrative format. But I still have a bunch of these interviews I recorded with some really interesting people, and even though editing them myself is painfully slow, in part because I made some technical mistakes in the recording itself, I wanted to honor the people who are generous with their time and, you know, actually put these things out like I'd wanted to. Sean, Susan, Miles, if you're listening, I haven't forgotten you, and I will be plodding along through the editing process to get them out there. Can't say when, but it'll happen. Today, though, I wanted to share my January 2023 interview with a filmmaker named Stacy Tenenbaum, who made a really lovely documentary called Scrap. Scrap is a movie that's structured as a series of vignettes about people whose lives are tied to scrap in some way. The owners of an incredible auto graveyard, an architect building a church out of the hull of a ship, a man who restores telephone booths, an artist who creates mind-blowing sculptures out of salvaged parts, families who live in the carcasses of decommissioned aircraft, and a lot more. It also has a really beautiful and poignant segment with Ed Metka, the former owner of the trolley graveyard in Pennsylvania that I visited dozens of times and even held photo workshops at. The cinematography in Scrap is just gorgeous, and it really takes the viewer through a lot of fascinating places. So if you've never heard of it, I encourage you to go to Apple or Amazon Prime and rent it. I'll have links in the show notes and description. If you're a fan of beautifully shot, forgotten, rusty things, which I imagine you are if you're familiar with me in the first place, add this one to your watch list and give it a shot. I genuinely enjoyed it a lot, which is why I wanted to share it with you. But first, I hope you'll stick around and listen to the interview with Stacy. She's had a really interesting path to making this film. She put together this project and was just about ready to go when COVID arrived on the scene. She has a lot of really interesting stories that I think will give you a greater appreciation for the film itself, and I promise nothing that's going to spoil anything. With that, let's get to the episode. Hi, Stacy. Thanks so much for being with me here today. I am really excited to talk with you about your movie Scrap. It is fantastic. I know this kind of sounds bad, but like I was expecting when I went in that it would be a good movie. You know, I thought, oh, I'll like this, but I I really did not expect to like it as much as I did. Uh, I did not expect it to be as exceptional as I thought it was. Um, Congratulations on it. It's really a fantastic accomplishment. Wow. Well, uh, thank you. I'm glad it exceeded your expectations. I, uh, You were one of the early supporters of the film, so I'm really happy that uh, you were impressed with the final result. It's been a long journey, as you know. Oh, I love it. I, I think we should get this out of the way. I, I do think people that are listening to this should go out and watch it afterwards. It's just uh, the cinematography is gorgeous, uh, absolutely gorgeous. And I also really like the score a lot. Oh. I thought the soundtrack for it was excellent. And the other thing that I was a little surprised by was I was expecting it to be a little more didactic. And specifically by that, I mean, like, I thought perhaps you would have like a voiceover that's telling you about the 
stats of, you know, Scrap's impact on the world and things like that, kind of more Ken Burnsy or something. And <laughs> I thought it was a lot more meditative and just you really, instead of trying to stuff the whole thing with the voiceover and do quick cuts, you really let people appreciate the beauty of the shots that you had and the different stories that you were trying to tell. So I, I love your approach. And I guess one final thing I'll say on that is, and I, I hope you'll take a comparison as a compliment, but one of my favorite documentaries is Manufactured Landscapes. And yeah. I thought there were definite similarities just in the tone because that was, I think, all of the things that I said just a moment ago were things that I really appreciated with manufactured landscapes as well. So great work on it. And again, I mean, I, I hope people rush out and see it. It really was quite good. Oh, thank you. It's it's funny because Manufactured Landscapes was actually one of the films that inspired me when I started making this film. They're fellow Canadian filmmakers as well. So that's really cool. But I kind of wanted to do that. I wanted to let the beauty of these objects sort of speak for themselves, which is why I decided not to have a voiceover. So, I mean, it, it's, it's very similar to, you know, photography that you might do in terms of really being in these spaces and and enjoying them and and feeling the history and the beauty of the rust and all of those things so that that was always my intention starting out with the film and i didn't feel like that made it feel slow which is kind of surprising too because sometimes when people do things like that you can kind of be like okay well how long are you going to show this shot but because it was so gorgeous like the scenery and the i thought the the people that you picked for the different segments were really compelling too and we'll get into that but for the listener who has not seen this yet. Basically, there are different segments from around the world, and they focus on different aspects of scrap and its impact on us, and then usually have people that are kind of tied in with those objects that are telling a bit about their story, but it's sort of a lot more thoughtful than, all right, here, this place was founded in this year, and this is the history of it. So you went to Old Car City. There was an aircraft graveyard in Thailand. There was a it looked like a shipbreaking yard in Spain. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, in Gijon, Spain. Yes. There's a shipbreaking yard up there. I did not realize there were still shipbreaking yards in Europe. I did not either until I started this project. <laughs> oh, that's cool. I, yeah. I, I love that segment. You had one that was in Lemon, South Dakota. Uh, there was an e-waste recycling facility in India. You had a portion in South Korea. You had the telephone booth graveyard in the UK. Then you also had a segment at the uh, trolley graveyard, which I've, I've been to quite a few times. So it's really a look across the globe that must have taken quite a bit of work to plan. It was a huge amount of planning. Um, originally, I just started looking for the graveyards. So that was, you know, I mean, you know where they are. <laughs> I mean, anyone can sort of, you know, go online and Instagram, obviously, and find uh, where these places are. But uh, my big goal was to find someone that had a, very, a specific story in each of the locations. So that became like a second level of research to do. Um, and so really, the film is about people's connection to these things. So it had to be both a beautiful location and also a really interesting human story. So um, I ended up researching a lot more places than ended up in the film. And can you tell me a little bit about what got you into this idea? Like, what was it that you said, you know what, this is the project I have to work on? 
It's uh, it's actually really weird because I um, was working on another project and probably about like 12 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, I saw this photo of an airplane graveyard. It was actually like a space junk graveyard outside of Moscow. And I'd wanted to film there and, and uh, didn't end up working out. And I just really thought it was amazing and beautiful and all this history. And it sort of got me thinking about, oh, wow, yeah, it's true. Like what happens to all this stuff? Like, where does it go? So I'd always had a fascination with those locations and just thought they were beautiful. And uh, I always had that in the back of my mind as as something I'd like to explore in a film. So um, it's been sort of percolating for a good decade, at least. What is the process that you went through when you said, okay, this is an idea that I'd like to work with. This is something that I'd like to see as a film. What what are the next steps for that? First, I was just looking for the graveyards. Where are they? What are they? Um, and then started to see, like, what are the human stories behind them that I could tell? So it was it was a bit of that. And then uh, the third layer was, like, do they allow me to go there and film it? Because I have to do everything legally. I have my own production company. I have to get releases signed and stuff like that. So um, that was the third layer of, like, some places didn't want me coming. So it was a mixture of stuff. It was about uh, over two years that I was researching the project. That's wild. All this prep work that you did, and then essentially you were starting production right as COVID hit. Yeah, uh, it actually was my first shoot. I went to Thailand. Oh, actually, I went to India, Thailand, and then we ended in Spain at the Shipbreaker. And uh, we ended in Spain March 9th. 2020. <laughs> oh, no. So I, I basically just got out of Spain as they were closing down the country. And it was really weird because I had no idea. When we were there, no one was talking about COVID. And then it sort of blew up like the day after we left. So when we were there, everything seemed to be fine. And then and then as I got home, I realized that they'd closed the country. And then, then they closed New York and, and everything started happening from there. So that made my filming, uh, it took a lot longer to film than I would originally have planned. And I'm sure that made it really challenging because you're just getting ramped up for this stuff. You've got all your ducks in a row, so to speak, to go out and film this. And then all of a sudden, everything came to a halt. So what happened at that point? It was a fairly brutal time in my life, I would have to say. Um, I mean, the first six months, I kept on making like new schedules, like, oh, the crew, like telling my crew, because I wanted to keep them on too, is, oh, we're going to, we're going to shoot it in, you know, in July. And then, you know, obviously I couldn't shoot it. And so for about six months, I was doing these schedules and being very hopeful and and being like, oh, it couldn't possibly last until September. Uh, And then I think after about six months, I was like, oh my God, this is like, never ending and I just sort of gave gave up and then I I got really sick during COVID um, and so I was sort of incommunicado for about six months because I lost my voice so it's just all kinds of shit happened but somehow I managed like when things would get quiet I would go and do a shoot like I did one shoot in the middle of COVID in Spain sometimes I was hiring people to go and do shoots so it was like a little mixture of things whenever COVID would die down I'd try to get a shoot in and I read that because of COVID, you had to do some of the, sh- the directing via Zoom, which like, how does that even work? <laughs> it actually works 
not bad. And it was also, um, it was India that I had to do via Zoom and Korea. So there were also these weird time differences. But basically, the crew there, I mean, I, I spend a lot of time prepping the crew before they do the shoot, just sending them footage, showing them the style that I wanted, telling them which shots I want them to get. But then they would actually set up like a monitor so I could be like the person that I was interviewing could see my face on the monitor and we were sort of doing the zoom that way. And I could also see how the crew was framing the shot and stuff like that. And it actually worked relatively well. Yeah. So I did, I did those two shoots via zoom. That's very impressive. And how has the reception been since you've released the film? It's been really good. You know, I think uh, the film has different audiences, different people are going to get different things out of them. I know, um, the environmentalists have been really excited about the film. It's sort of, it's an environmental film, but in a very different way. Like you said, it's not like facts and figures. It's more about emotion and our, our relationship to the things that we have in our lives. So that's been like a really great audience. I've been partnering with Repair Cafes. They've been doing screenings and uh, so that's worked really well. I did have a theatrical release across the States uh, and I'm actually still doing that. I'm going to be in New Orleans in March, but I actually, I, I really thought that Urban Explorers would be a big audience for this film. And, and I haven't managed to connect with as many Urban Explorers as I would have liked to have. So hopefully this will help in that respect. Well, Urban Explorers are a wild and fickle bunch, and I have not <laughs> figured them out entirely myself. So, and I don't mean that in any sort of disrespectful way. It's just, you never know quite what's going to get them hooked or what they're going to be interested in. But yeah, I, I think that's fantastic and um, very exciting that you're going to be going to New Orleans as well. Tell me a little bit more about the different segments and what went into filming them. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I realize um, there are a bunch of different segments, so you don't have to like, you know, run through every single one, but what, some of the ones that are kind of maybe interesting stories about setting yeah. them up. Uh, I think that the hardest one, for, well, there were a few hard ones for me to film, but I think the hardest one was the ship breaking. So basically, that's a story about an architect. He's from France, but he's actually originally from Korea. So he's he kind of has his business between France and Seoul. And he is making buildings out of old ocean liners. They're really impressive buildings. Uh, and I managed to call him. He'd done one building out of an ocean liner. And I sort of called him when I was doing the research phase of the film. And I'm like, hey, do you plan on doing anything else with an ocean liner? And it just so happened that he did. And he was at the very beginning of this project. So... I was like, can I film you doing that? And it was very complicated because he was looking for ships all over. So he was going to Pakistan and to India and to Sri Lanka and all these different places that I knew were extremely hard to get permission to film at. <laughs> and he also sort of didn't work like well, usually a film team, you plan stuff. But he was like, okay, I'm going to India like, you know, next week. And I'm like, oh, shit, okay, I'll try and get to India next week. Right. Uh, and then India didn't work out. And, and then he called me and he's like, I'm going to this place in Spain in a couple of days. It's Gijon. And I'm like, Gijon? I don't even know where this place is. But then I, I went to look for that and we got permission to film there. And then I brought my crew to Spain and it turned out that they changed their mind and they didn't want us to film there. Oh, goodness. And uh, it was just a really wild ride. We ended up filming it and, and going to Gijon, which is like an incredibly beautiful town. I had no idea how beautiful he honed was. Um, and uh, so I, I felt really happy that we were able to film ship breaking just because it's such a difficult thing to film nowadays. So that was great. That was one of the uh, fun projects. And I also got to go to Korea 
But I just went there just before Christmas and filmed the exterior of the church, which is now finished. He built this church in Seoul, which is not in the film, but I went there to do it anyway because I just wanted to see the church. So (laughs) that was a really cool story that I sort of got to follow from beginning to end. Oh, well, if you have any photos of that or anything, I'd love to put them in the show notes for people when they watch this so they can see the final project because I certainly was very interested in that too. How did it work out that you got the shots from shipbreaking if they changed their mind about letting you in? Which, by the way, I mean, that's happened to me plenty of times too. And goodness, that's frustrating. And that's when it's just me, not a whole crew. So I, I was, I mean, when I saw those segments, I was in awe, not just because they're very impressive visually, but also because that has been something that I have wanted to do my whole career, at least. And yeah, it's almost impossible to get permission to go into those places. Yeah, it's really, really difficult. (laughs) I did get permission after about three months of back and forth and begging. And yeah, it it ended up working out in the end, but uh, it was not it was not easy. It's just I mean, it takes one personality and they decide that they don't want you in. The good thing about, you know, the European ones is that the shipbreaker I did go to is working according to environmental standards. So I think that's why also they were more open because a lot of the shipbreakers like in India and stuff like that, they have human rights and environmental problems that they're, uh, you know, not necessarily skirting the law or, or they are, they're, they're not within the legal means. So that's why they don't want you there filming. But this place in, in Spain, actually, uh, it ended up working out. I don't know if they'd let anyone else in. <laughs> it took me a while. Right. But uh, yeah, it was, it was uh, really cool to be there. Just the scale of the place is so awe-inspiring. But yeah, I mean, I've heard the same stories about shipbreaking yards just being incredibly hazardous, there being like shards of metal in the beach, and of course, all the torches and things like that. And yeah, I mean, they sound like incredibly dangerous places. So very impressive that you were able to get that section in. Wanted to ask you a little bit about the gentleman who did the sculptures. Can you tell us a little bit more about him? He was amazing. I mean, those sculptures were unbelievable. Yeah, so his name's John Lopez, and he's a sculptor uh, based in Lemon, South Dakota. And he's like a rancher. He worked, his families had a ranch. He's collecting all old scrap metal. People have their different farm equipment and whatever scrap they have in their scrap pile. He kind of goes around to his neighbors and picks it up. And he builds like these life-size unbelievably beautiful and intricate sculptures of like stuff like buffalo and he built a tiger when we were there and he sells them they're kind of like public art so he has sculptures that are all across uh, North America and I ended up going down he had some in New Hampshire which is close to my place in Montreal so I did a trip down there to film a couple of his sculptures there and it's just such cool work because they're these huge sculptures and so do you see the animal when you're far and then you kind of get in closer and you see like, you know, it's like a tractor seed or different bits and pieces of scrap metal that he's collected. So it's it's a really cool project. And he's one of the most, I mean, there are a lot of scrap metal artists out there, but he's really one of the most talented ones that I've come across. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the sculptures in this were just unreal. Like, you wouldn't think, looking at it closely, that it would be something that is made of the various components. I mean, you can see them right there, but it just seems like with as lifelike in their own way and detailed as they are, that how how would you even conceptualize that? That was, I guess, the part that blew me away. And there was a segment in the movie where he was talking about an angel figure 
that he put over, I think it was his, his aunt passed away and he was designing like the graveyard area that she was in. And the, the figure of the angel was like, even in looking at it, I was thinking, how can that be found object? It does not look like found object. But yeah, that was that was just stunning. Yeah, he's amazing. He's done a lot of public art in different places. And uh, he's part of certain collections, private collections as well. And just a really sweet guy, like a super humble, really nice guy. So that was fun. I did go to Lemon, South Dakota to film. And I'd never been to South Dakota. And I absolutely fell in love with that part of the world. It's just so incredibly beautiful. So uh, that was a great shoot. You also talked to... Ed Metka, who is a good friend of mine and who has the trolley graveyard. And first of all, I wanted to thank you. I don't know if I requested or he requested or both of us requested that you just kept it as a secret location. I know I've been very adamant about not putting that on my website because he is specifically asked, but I saw that in the movie and I was like, oh, good on you. Thank you for doing that. But that was such a sweet segment. And I got a little choked up when I saw it because I love Ed. I mean, he is just one of the kindest, most gentle people I've ever met. And you caught him after his wife passed away and everything. And I feel like it was, you know, there was a definite melancholy about it, but yet there was still a kind of beauty and optimism in him ending it with like, I feel something good's going to happen. Yeah, it's the, it's the eternal optimist. I mean, he, his dream has been to restore these trolleys, like, you know, for, it's been 50 years, I don't know how many years, but quite a lot. Um, and he's still really hustling at it. He's 84 now, I think. And he's still trying to make deals. Like he calls me up and he's like, I'm talking to the mayor of this town and we're trying to. So he's just such a, I mean, his love of the trolleys really comes through. I definitely wanted to keep it a secret location. I actually ended up going back. I think there were two years in between. So the first shoot and and the last shoot that I did. And the amount of damage and graffiti is incredible what happened in two years there. And quite heartbreaking, in fact, that the place is, is just getting trashed. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when I saw the footage that you had, there's some damage that's there. But mm-hmm. I was commenting to my wife like, oh, it's so much worse now. Yeah, it's <laughs> so really, much worse. Really bad. And that that's that's heartbreaking. I mean, uh, yeah, it's uh, that, that was really difficult for me to see when I went back. The difficulty with the, the trolley graveyard is that it's this really long stretch of track. I think it's like 20 acres or something, mm-hmm. if I recall correctly, right around there. And it's in the forest, so it's you can't really, even if you put a hurricane fence up or something, people would just cut holes in it and it would be destroyed because there's no real way to monitor back there. But he also has an enclosed shed that you had some footage from. And yeah, the things that were in that just got absolutely destroyed since then. Yeah, I just thought that segment was was really beautiful and really made me feel good about you know, getting you in touch with him and everything, because he he is somebody that means so much to me. I mean, he, he's somebody that I've worked with in doing photography workshops, but he's also somebody that I consider a really close friend. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just thought you really did a lovely job of showing it. Now, when you were doing that segment, when you went back, did you use any of the footage from after it kind of got trashed more. I didn't really see. No, I didn't. Yeah, I was shooting a segment with Johnny Yo that I haven't edited yet. And I actually have to get him the footage too. And that's why I went back because I wanted to really like, you know, look at these locations from an urban explorer's point of view, and sort of what they're looking at, and also giving a different view of urban exploration. So it's not necessarily like it's people that are interested in history and want to preserve the past. And and so 
I, I feel that I share a lot of the same impulses as urban explorers. I'm just not as talented, unfortunately. So I had gone back there two years after to do a little bit of filming uh, with him and see his process for taking photos there as well. Yeah, as, as I said, I've, I've met him once before and been familiar with his work online. He's a, he's a very talented photographer. I mean, I, I think of the people that are out there photographing abandoned places. He's one of the more prolific and his style is just fantastic. So that's that's really cool. I felt bad because that was something that I could have done. And as I was watching the movie, I was like, oh, I should have done that. But at the same time, I am so camera shy, like <laughs> legendarily camera shy that every, every time I see something that I'm filmed in, I'm like, oh, I should just hop off a bridge. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm the same way. I'm only behind the uh, camera as much as possible. Right, exactly. It's so much better. You get the picture that you want and you're not in it. Exactly. So what was it that led to that segment not being included in the film? I actually was uh, doing it as an extra segment that I was going to put on my website or use for social media. And to be honest, I just like ran out of money and energy <laughs> to edit it. So I, I do have it and I need to edit it. But I just I haven't like because I don't do any of these things myself. I, I don't have any real skills. So I have to hire an editor and get them to do it. And uh, and I just literally ran out of time and money. Well, my wife watched it with me and she really enjoyed it as well. And she's a former film festival director. Oh, so cool. she has seen a bajillion documentary. She cried twice um, <laughs> during it, which is not a infrequent thing when watching movies, but closed for storm by comparison. She only cried once during that. So you got two cries out of the wife, but she loved it. And she was pointing out that the fact that all three of your films were in hot docs is quite the achievement. Yeah, I mean, it helps that I'm a Canadian. <laughs> so uh, yeah, but all three of my films did premiere at Hot Docs. Uh, and uh, I mean, it, it, Strap's done really well at a festival run as well. So and it, we're in cinemas across the US too. So it's been a, it's been a good run with Scrap. I think that it touches a lot of people. It's you go into it not expecting anything. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a weird idea to do a film about Scrap Metal. So I think people go in with very low expectations. And, and every that I've spoken to has been really pleasantly surprised. Well, yeah, I guess maybe the reason for that, at least on my end, because I mean, I mentioned that I wouldn't say low expectations, like I just didn't know what to expect. And I think part of the reason is because you're looking at it and you're thinking, okay, scrap, well, what exactly is this film going to say about that? Like, how is it going to inform me about it? What is the style that it's going to take? Particularly, oh, and you know, I had wanted to mention this earlier, like when you were talking about the approach that you took on it, one of the things that Bertinsky said in Manufactured Landscapes that really resonated with me was that he believes in maybe not so much telling people, okay, my work is about the environment. And, you know, as you look at these pictures, you should really be thinking about the environmental devastation that the places that I'm photographing are causing. He mm -hmm. believes more in letting people see that and draw their own conclusions. So it's more of a show and not tell sort of thing. And again, I mean, I thought that was really successful in this case, too. You, you really captured the beauty of a lot of these places, but particularly in the scenes in India, you really can't help but think, oh, my God, like these people have no respirators on. The things that they're working with are probably incredibly toxic. What was filming that part like? That was wild. India was crazy. The first time I went to do a scout there and there were those riots, they had these crazy riots <laughs> and I couldn't actually get to the place. It was like there were like burnt out buses along the route. It was just 
complete insanity. But then I, didn't I finally hear, but hold, hold on just a sec. Like, what happened with the riot? It has to do with Modi, their their prime minister. Um, he he's doing a lot of legislation that's uh, anti-Muslim. So the Muslims were rioting in these different areas. Things were kind of gnarly before I got there. But we ended up in this factory uh, that's an e-waste factory. And I mean, the crazy thing is when you see the film, you just see the crazy amounts of e-waste, like the huge, huge piles. And apparently, like they're only recycling, you know, 10%, not even. <laughs> so the the waste is actually so much bigger to a, a magnitude that is insane. So filming there was quite incredible. And it's actually one of the more environmentally friendly e-waste places in in India. So yeah, they don't have respirators and stuff like that. But it, it, the rest of the industry in, in India is actually burning the stuff, which is extremely toxic. Oh my um, goodness. So yeah, th- this was actually one of the more eco of the of the recycling facilities. But that place was amazing. I mean, it's every filmmaker's dream. Like, it, it was just so incredibly beautiful. And because of all the dust, the quality of the light was really great in there. And there were these like shafts of light that were coming in through like missing bricks in the structure. And it, it was just really cinematic and, and really, really beautiful space. I would agree. I thought the lighting was amazing there. You were following a photographer who was documenting the space. Can you tell us a little more about her? Yeah, her name is Somia Kandawal. And she actually, I found her because she did a um, photography sort of series on Mayapuri, which was a car scrapping place. It's one of the largest largest car scrappers, I think, in Asia. And she did these beautiful, beautiful photos there. And I'd originally hired her because I thought I might want to film there. And I hired her as my fixer to help set me up with some car scrap people, which actually they ended up closing my Puri. It's no longer open. And then she told me that she was doing this exhibition on e-waste. And so I ended up featuring her in the film rather than uh, using her as my assistant. And so, yeah, she's a really, really talented photographer. She does a lot of stuff for the New York Times and National Geographic. And she's just, but this is kind of her own art projects that she does, she does about, about scrap. And, and so she, she really shared a lot of the feelings that I had about e-waste, you know, in terms of curbing our desire to throw stuff away so quickly. So uh, she ended up being a really great part of the film and her images are really, really beautiful from that location. Oh, they're amazing. And I was really struck by at the exhibition that she had after she was photographing this place. One of the people who was there was talking about privilege and how do these people feel about being surrounded by electronics that they probably can't afford. And she said that they're glad that they have jobs there. And it kind of was something I suppose I hadn't really thought about. Not that necessarily that's something where you should look at that and be like, oh, well, great. Okay, everything's fine then. But I just thought that was a really interesting moment where, you know, you have one preconception about how the people that are there perceive it, but it's wildly different maybe from the people who are actually there. Yeah, and I think that that's, I I wanted to include that just because there's environmental problems, there's much more complexity, right? It's not just like a one answer thing. We First of all, we should not worry that the e-waste recyclers are going to be out of a job. There's plenty for everyone. Uh, We should still reduce our consumption. But, you know, it's just another way of looking at it that, yeah, that is providing a livelihood for this family of people. So it's not like we have to, we can, well, first of all, we can't get rid of the problem entirely, but we certainly can do our part to to curb the amount that's being 
put out there. Yeah. When you're looking at a place and somebody like me is saying, oh, my God, these people should be wearing respirators. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like I'm usually the one that should be wearing a respirator and is not. Can you tell us a little bit more about the place that had the old phone booths in England? That was actually one of my I mean, I loved all of the segments. I feel like, for example, the sculptor or Ed, any one of those segments would have been one that I would have watched the whole movie for. But that one in particular, the uh, the phone booth graveyard was pretty delightful, I thought. <laughs> yeah, I, it was actually the first shoot that I did, the very, very first shoot, even before I had money to make a film. I did like a little sizzle, which is like showing people like, this is what the film's about. And I went to film that phone graveyard. And uh, it's a really special place. It's, uh, it's kind of out also in the woods but there's like these trains going by like it's i think between like the airport and london is where it's located so there's like a lot of trains going back and forth uh and it's this guy and his family and they they just bought up a whole stock of these london beautiful iconic red phone booths when like the government was just going to scrap them which is like you can't even believe that that would happen um and he couldn't believe that the government was going to scrap them so he bought some up and he's been he's been restoring them i think for the past 15 years maybe i'd have to double check that um but yeah he does this amazing work like he not only brings the booth the exterior back to life but he also has all these old vintage uh phones and he puts in like the phone that would have been in that era in that phone booth it's workable like all of the sounds of the phones in the film are actually from one of the phone booths that he restored um so yeah it's just it was a really great place and uh a lucky shoot because we um it was like the one day that it was sunny and beautiful in in london in the fall right (laughs) so that was like kind of a blessing yeah i i loved that he was finding places or places were finding him that wanted to actually reuse them. I thought that was uh, pretty amazing. What were some of the things that he used them for? Well, he, he's selling them. He's selling them to film sets. He's selling them back to like some towns are adopting them and they're they're like getting the phone booth installed in their town and putting like a defibrillator in it. They're putting in like cafes and libraries. And so there's all these like little uses for the phone booth that like might not be their original use, but they're still being used in a different way. That was one of the ones that o- Olivia cried a little bit at just because she was so happy that he was doing something with them. But I, I love the way you filmed it because my reaction to it, the first part that you see of him restoring it is him knocking out the glass of yeah. one of the old glass of one of the booths. And, uh, you know, my reaction is like, what are you doing? Stop that. <laughs> <laughs> no. And then and then you realize, oh, of course, he's he's fixing this up. And it was it was pretty stunning to see the end result of that. I mean, it looked almost brand new. It is. They're they're amazing. Like his attention to detail and everything. It, his phone. He does great work. I mean, it's it's yeah, amazing what he's done, and he's saved that little piece of history. That I mean, it's hard to even think that the British phone box would not exist. It, you know, but for a few visionary people that have been saving them. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we'll continue talking to Stacy. Okay, we are back with Stacy Tenenbaum, director of the documentary Scrap. Let's talk a little bit about the aircraft graveyard in Thailand. How many different aircraft are actually there? It's hard to say because they're like pieces of different aircrafts. <laughs> right. 
there's like a 747. I think that big, big one is a 747. And then there's like smaller ones, like maybe two. There's like a bunch of wings. And then they also converted a few of them into homes. Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, it doesn't have to be an exact number. I was just curious how big the place actually is. It's not huge. It's uh, it's not huge, but the planes are huge. <laughs> like They're so cool and they're so big that, you know, I mean, five planes in one location is actually a lot of plane. It's a really neat place. And it's also the cool thing about it is it's in the middle of the city. Like it's like I expected it to be somewhere out in the boonies and it's really like sort of very close to everything. And there are people that are living in these retired aircraft. And I mean, it seemed like a whole community, right? It was actually a grandmother, and uh, it's all her family. So oh, her okay. kids and her grandkids, and so like it's sort of her and her extended family. But she got hired as a caretaker, like as a sort of uh, guard for the location, and ended up turning it into quite a burgeoning business because she charges people to uh, photograph the place. <laughs> there are tons and tons of tourists, photographers. There was, I think, a music video shooting there when I was there. So she's turned it into quite a nice little business to support support herself and her family. We talked a little bit about COVID's impact on this shoot, but were there any other segments that were like for other reasons, particularly challenging? I mean, excluding also the uh, the shipbreaking yard. Oh, that's a good question. I mean, they're all challenging. <laughs> Filming is never easy. I mean, they were physically challenging, like the e-waste place, like a, not only did like it, being there for even two days was just brutal. I mean, like you're on your health. I think I took a couple of years off my health just, you know, doing those two days of shooting there. And also the same for the uh, airplane graveyard. Like it was really, really hot and uh, you're there, you know, <laughs> all day long in the baking sun inside these like tin cans. So um, a lot of the, the, the shoots were quite physically tiring. And was there anything that you would say you were particularly proud of? I mean, obviously completing the film and <laughs> doing so with all the challenges that you had to filming, but were there any segments that you were like, yeah, this was maybe my favorite? Oh gosh, I don't know if I have a favorite. I really um, loved the, I don't know if you noticed, but John, the sculptor goes and he does like his scrap metal picking at this like insane salvage yard. <laughs> oh yeah, I love that. It's the craziest place. So it's a tractor salvage and cars and all kinds of stuff, but it goes on for like acres. It's just, it's endless. And I thought that that place was just so crazy. And that was one of the shoots that I couldn't go on. So I wasn't entirely sure what the location was going to look like. You know, it was just kind of like, I knew it was big. And then I got the footage back and I was like, holy shit, this place is like completely off the hook. Like I had not expected that it would going to be that vast and that striking. So I was really sad that I didn't get to go there because I love scrap metal. So I was like, damn, wish I would have gone on that shoot. But yeah, I mean, all the places are so different and so beautiful. And uh, it's hard to, to choose one that's a favorite. How did you get to this point in your career? I mean, I knew you did two documentaries before that, but what made you transition to that? Yeah, well, I was working in television for the like, you know, 16 years before I started doing films. So I started out working in kids TV and I was researching. I was finding the stories and sort of booking the shoots and ended up producing after a while. But it was always working on other people's projects. So, you know, they'd get an idea and then they'd hire me to like produce or direct or, you know, research or whatever. And I 
sort of went from job to job like that for 16 years. And then eventually I had this idea to do a film about shoe shiners that I'd had as an idea for a really long time. And I somehow was out of work. I was in between contracts and I just was like, okay, I'm going to do this shoe shiner film. And it worked. And so in order to do the film, I had to start a production company. And then I decided that I was just wanted to do my own films and come up with my own ideas and, and sort of turn them, like make them a reality. So I've been doing that since 2014. I've been making films. And how do you pick those subjects? I mean, the first one was about the shoe shiners. The second one was pipe dreams. Can you tell us a little bit about like what it was that inspired you for each of those as well? Yeah, well, the shoe shiners, I had like a thing for getting my shoes shined. I lived in India for a while when I was much younger <laughs> and I used to get my shoes shined every day and was like, and always get my shoe shine when I travel and talk to the shoe shiners. And I just thought it was a really cool job that was completely undervalued in our society. So I kind of wanted to give a platform for the shoe shiners to describe like what it is about the craft that they like and to showcase shoe shiners around the world. So that was fun and great project. And then I ended up doing a film called Pipe Dreams, which was actually about competitive pipe organ players. So some people think it's organ donation, but it's not. It's actually like the musical instrument, which happens in my hometown. So there's this huge, very, very prestigious organ competition for people under 35 that happens in my hometown. And I'm friends with the artistic director. And he sort of invited me since it's been taking place, he invited me to go and see it. And I was like, oh, I don't want to go see organ music. This is so brutal. And then I went and I completely fell in love with the organ. Like, I think it's just the most mind-blowing instrument. And I mean, the churches themselves are amazing. I mean, you do a lot of photography in churches. You you can see like the just the architecture and the art and the, like churches are beautiful. And the cool thing about filming that was I got to be in the organ loft so high up in the church. So you really get to see the art and stuff in the church that other people might not see that close up, which was really cool. So I did that organ competition film and then Scrap is my third film. A lot of people don't realize what a dedicated community there is to pipe organs. I mean, there, there are people that will, when you put up a location like a church or a theater, they want to know everything about the organ. They don't really like it. The building <laughs> is not all that important, but the, the pipe organ is. And if you are off, watch out, you know. Yeah, they're really into the organ something. stuff, man. They're, they're a definite group. Fun, fun people, man. I have to say the organist party like no one I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, you can take it from me. No, they're, they're great. Organists are really into their thing. And they're like, it's really weird to see these young people that are just like virtuoso organists. Like when you see someone playing the organ and it'll just like, it just blows your mind. It's just the craziest instrument. Very, very cool. Well, yeah, it's such a phenomenally complex thing. I, I have a hard time even conceptualizing it, but I'm sure that must've been amazing to see. And, yeah, when you're when you're in the the work that I do, you run into a lot of little niche interest groups and you realize, oh, my God, this is like a huge thing. You know, yeah. this I mean, maybe not huge as in there are millions of people that are into it, but huge as in there is a good chunk of people and they are hardcore. One of the other projects I noticed that you had worked on was you were field director in a show that was about people who hunted bombs. Like, that oh, sounds gosh, really yeah. scary. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I did work on a show called Bomb Hunters. There, there, there were mostly like unblown up bombs. I don't. <laughs> it's a long time since I worked on that show. Dirty shoot. Very a lot of it was just digging up old ordnance. And isn't there a 
very real risk that some of that ordinance would explode while you're well, digging it up? It seemed uh, we did definitely make a lot of that in the film. But I mean, we were working with professional bomb hunters. So they they kind of had protocols for, you know, they, they, they I never felt like I was in danger necessarily. You know, they they knew they knew how to handle it. And they had a special technique for, you know, making sure that everything was safe. What projects are you thinking about working on next, if you have any that you're comfortable sharing with us? Oh, I'm working on so many. It's crazy. I am actually going into production on a film about professional wrestling. So it's called The Death Tour, and it's about a tour, the professional wrestling tour that takes place in the far north of Canada in these isolated communities that are only accessible in the winter by ice road. So it's like ice road truckers slash... (laughs) professional wrestling uh and they go and they do these tours um they've been doing them since the 1970s the tours have um launched the careers of like wrestling superstars like everybody who's anybody has been on this tour which is really cool so we're following a group of five wrestlers uh this february as they're doing the the death tour i'm not directing that film i'm only producing it but i am working on two other ideas of my own that i'm directing one is called tough old broads and it's about female groundbreakers like the first woman to do something in a man's world mm-hmm. and what they're doing now as older women <laughs> uh, and most of them are still kicking ass well into their 70s and 80s um, oh, that's awesome Yeah. And then I'm doing another project called The Doppelganger Project. It's a film about a photographer who takes photos of lookalikes. There was recently an article about him in the New York Times. Uh, He's done, he's been doing this photography project for 25 years. And he's filmed over 250 people who look alike, but are not related. His work is really beautiful. You can look it up. His his project's called I'm Not a Lookalike, and his name is Francois Brunel. So I'm going to be following him in his 25th year of this uh, photography project that he's been working on. Oh, that's amazing. Stacey, I want to thank you so much for being here and talking about your movie with us again. I want to congratulate you on it. I think it's a really phenomenal movie, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. Well, thank you so much for having me. And thanks for all your help, like early on in the film. I mean, it's been four or five years. You really helped connect me with Ed. And and that was a huge help. And so thanks for believing in the film since the very beginning, even before it was a film. Oh, absolutely. It was a treat when I was looking at the credits to be like, oh, look, it's me. I'm, <laughs> yes, in, the, I'm in the credits under the thanks. <laughs> well, thank you so much, really. All right, that's it for the episode. Hope you folks enjoyed it. And again, I'll have links to Scrap on Apple and Amazon Prime where you can watch it at your leisure. I'd like to thank Stacy for joining me, thank you for listening, and thank my Patreon supporters for making this possible. With a special shout out to Brian M., Jennifer D., Peter E., Terry G., Donna B., and L. M. If you'd like to join my Patreon and help keep the show going, I have the link in the description also. I have a ton of behind-the-scenes videos, exclusive photos and writing, giveaways, and a lot more for people who enjoy my work, and it's all ad-free. Considering how content creators have been choked out of social media platforms like Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by greedy billionaires, it's really the best way for me to keep up with you folks on what I'm working on. Aside from my Abandoned America website, which is still free and full of abandoned places you can probably spend days clicking through. Other than that, things have been a bit rough here as my favorite hound in the world, Charlie Peanut Butter, was viciously attacked and pretty badly wounded a little over a week ago by a dog in our neighborhood the owners don't bother leashing, and we've really been struggling emotionally with helping him through the resulting infection and the healing process. 
Honestly, it's been heartbreaking to deal with. If you follow me online, you know Charles is one of my very favorite creatures in the universe and a lot of other things have had to take a backseat as we deal with his medical treatment. He seems to be in a better spot now than he was last week, but yeah, it's been an ordeal and we just want him to be healthy and happy again. So if you fine folks can keep his speedy recovery and his safety in your thoughts, we'd be grateful. I still have another episode or three in me before I go on break for a bit preparing season three of the podcast, so check back in two or three weeks for the next episode. Or just subscribe to your podcast platform of choice and they'll keep you updated when it drops. Thanks again for joining me. I'm your host, Matthew Christopher, and you've been listening to Abandoned America. Abandoned America.